anytime somebody stumbles over Jesus, it means in some way they have rejected him. Last week, we talked about ways in which people stumble over Jesus, and I encouraged you to avoid these ways. But some people stumble over his identity. Some people stumble over his purpose. Some his method. Some his historicity. Some his authority. Some his message. Stumbling over Jesus is a common thing in our world today. We see lots of people who stumble all over him. I'm fortunate that I have the opportunity to talk with a pretty prominent fellow who's stumbled all over Jesus Monday night, March 30th at Missouri State. I'm going to be debating a fellow named Dan Barker about the historical reliability of, res of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'm very excited about it because Dan has stumbled all over Jesus. He grew up in church. He went to Bible college. He was even a Christian minister for a while. But in 1984, he walked away from the faith and since then has been an outspoken opponent of the faith. He even started a Freedom From Religion Foundation. He's written a lot of books. He debates different Christians here and there on different topics. And 13 days before Easter, he's coming to Springfield to debate me. I'm pretty excited about that because... I know full well that Jesus has raised from the dead. I know full well the identity of Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. I know full well his purpose is to come and seek to save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many. I know full well that his method of salvation is the substitutionary atonement. I know full well his historical reliability. Jesus literally came back from the dead tangibly and physically. I know that he has authority, and Jesus is Lord of my life, and I know that his message is to place faith in him. Not everybody does, but I'm excited to get the chance to debate a pretty well-known atheist about the historical reliability of the resurrection because there are lots of people at the university level who stumble over Jesus. They have professors say things like, Jesus is not real. Jesus did not come back from the dead. The Bible is not reliable. And our young people are particularly susceptible because it is a non-stop barrage of stumbling over Jesus. Praise God for our campus ministers. Praise God for the uh, Christian campus house and people like Tyler who are there leading men into the truth helping students to see that there is a better way. And I'm glad that I get to partner with him and with the campus house to proclaim the truth of the resurrection because stumbling all over Jesus means we reject him in some way. But we have to ask ourselves this very important question. Does stumbling over Jesus mean that our rejection of him is total and final? No. No. Not at all. God holds out his hand all day long to those who have stumbled. And just as we talked about last week, Israel's stumble, stumbling all over the stumbling stone, who is Jesus himself, God continues to hold out his hand to the nation of Israel. And so too, he holds out his hand to all of us. At one time, I stumbled and did not know the power of Jesus, and at one time, I proclaimed myself an atheist. 
And I told people that the Bible was unreliable. I told people Jesus never came back from the dead. But God got a hold of me, and I know that he can do the same. And I pray that he does the same for Dan Barker. Because I don't want anyone to stumble over Jesus. The nation of Israel stumbled all over Jesus. They stumbled over him, and yet they were chosen by God. Israel is a unique paradox. Because the Bible, particularly Romans chapters 9, 10, and now 11, talk about the tragic paradox of Israel. God's chosen people, and never forget that the Israelites are indeed God's chosen people. There are three things about the Israelites that encapsulate God's choice of them more than any other. The first is that they are a people that received God's law. In a time when law codes of Hammurabi and other human-made laws were woefully inadequate of understanding the will of God, God saw fit to deliver His law, the Ten Commandments, the 613 precepts of the law to the nation of Israel. And because they were the standard bearers, because they were the ones that had and carried and proclaimed the law, they were chosen and special. The next thing that identified Israel as being very, very special was that they stood holy and set apart from every other nation around them by their monotheism. Israel believed in one and only one God, the true God of the universe. This stood in stark opposition to religions that would worship multiple gods. Israel was unique, special, and chosen because they had the knowledge of the one true God. And the third thing that made Israel truly special and shows their place as God's chosen nation is that the Messiah himself came out of Israel. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus grew up in the nation of Israel and proclaimed salvation not just to Israel but to Gentiles also. God chose Israel and yet Israel continued to stumble not because of God's unfaithfulness, and not because of God's standard, but because of God's preordained choice. You see, God has chosen to show mercy, but mercy must be preceded by disobedience. God wants to show mercy. He wants to show mercy to Israel. He wants to show mercy to you, to me, to everyone. And yet, it is impossible even for God to demonstrate mercy without first seeing disobedience. You see, mercy is being treated better than you deserve. Mercy is being treated in a way that goes beyond what you should and how you should be treated. But if you have never disobeyed, God has no need to show you mercy. If you just perfectly follow the law and you're a flawless person, there is no need for mercy. Disobedience is logically prior to mercy. And God is keen to show mercy. I know this because in my life God has shown me lots of mercy. God has shown me mercy even though I at one time was very disobedient to the truth. I used to pluck certain kids out of the local youth group, and convinced them that Christianity was phony. And you know my story about how God finally brought someone into my life who could show me the truth. A man smarter than myself and yet also compassionate 
able to show me mercy and to show me the truth, and I wanted to know the truth that he had. What will God do with Israel? What will God do with an entire people chosen by him for a purpose that have stumbled all over Jesus? This is what Romans chapter 11 is all about today. What will God do with Israel? And just as we talked about last week, our path parallels Israel's path. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans 11. Otherwise, follow along on the screens behind me. Let's read Romans 11. We'll start with verses 1 through 10. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. It is a good thing to know that God has not rejected his people who have stumbled all over Jesus because you have probably stumbled all over Jesus and you worry, has God rejected me? Have I done something so bad that God has rejected me? Paul will tell us very clearly four reasons why God has not rejected Israel. The first is personal. Paul is a Jew and he's not been rejected God can't reject Israel if there is an Israelite who is accepted by God, and Paul is that Israelite. Paul had an impressive pedigree, yet he was woefully misguided before he met Jesus. If you want to learn about his pedigree, Paul talks about his human pedigree in Philippians chapter 3, declaring that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul, in regard to the law, was a Pharisee. In terms of zealousness, persecuted the church. In terms of righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's how Paul described himself. Oh, that's impressive, but woefully misguided. Woefully misguided. For Paul himself took legal responsibility for the first Christian martyr, that was ever murdered for his faith. Stephen, after declaring the truth before at the time Saul and many other Israelites, Paul, or Saul at the time, took the cloaks of the men around so they could warm up their throwing arms better, pick up rocks, and hurl them at Stephen's head until he died. That was Saul's doing, Paul. And he breathed out murderous threats against the church. Oh, he persecuted them. And yet Paul has not rejected God has not rejected Paul. 
He can say, I know God has not rejected Israel because I am an Israelite and I stand before you accepted by God. The second reason that Paul declares is theological. If God chooses you, then you are foreloved and foreknown. If you recall back the last two sermons, Chris's excellent sermon on chapter 9 and the sermon last week on chapter 10, we know that if God chooses you, you have been foreloved and foreknown by God. And if God foreknows and foreloves you, his choice of you does not just evaporate. He doesn't suddenly reject his own choice and so reject you. And if Israel is God's chosen people, then Israel is foreknown and foreloved by God. The nature of God requires he not reject them. The third reason that God has not rejected Israel is scriptural. Elijah thought he was alone, just as some think Israel is rejected, but a remnant remained. You know the story of Elijah from 1 Kings 19. There's a horrible, horrible sweeping ideology going across Israel where people are turning to false gods. Baal is one of these false gods. And Elijah thinks he's the last prophet of God left, and so he challenges 400 prophets of Baal to an epic showdown on Mount Carmel. And he says, let the people of Israel decide this day who is God, Baal or the Lord. And he says, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take a bull and we're going to slaughter it. You slaughter yours, I'll slaughter mine. We'll build an altar and we'll sacrifice our bull on the altar and then we will ask God to call fire down and consume the sacrifice. Elijah said, you guys go first. And so the prophets of Baal built an altar and they slaughtered a bull and they cried out for Baal to bring fire down, but Baal did not. And you know why. Because Baal is a false god. Baal is nothing more than a demon masquerading with a false name to trick people away from the true god. And he has no real power. Unable to bring fire down, Elijah started mocking them. Perhaps Baal can't hear you. Shout louder. And they did. Maybe Baal is asleep. Rouse him from his slumber. Perhaps Baal is in the bathroom, indisposed. Shout loud. Maybe if you cut yourself and cry out, he'll listen. And so the prophets started slashing themselves with swords, crying out in trance and, and begging Baal to bring fire. After hours, Elijah said, enough of this. Baal will not deliver. But to show you the power of the Lord, take these buckets of water, fill, or take these buckets, fill them with water, and douse my altar and my sacrifice in water. And the prophets of Baal did this. And then Elijah prayed to God, and God consumed the altar, the wet altar, the sacrifice, in fire, in glorious victory, defeating the prophets of Baal. And everyone witnessing it that day said, truly, the Lord is God Almighty, not Baal. It was one of the ultimate mountaintop experiences in all of Scripture. And yet what happens after we leave the mountaintop? We go to the valley. And Elijah was on the run. Ahab and Jezebel were after him and bad things were happening and he thought he was all alone and he went to a cave and he said, God, maybe it's just time for me to die. And God said, Elijah, you're not alone. I have reserved 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. 
You are not alone. A remnant remained then, and Paul says God has called a remnant to this day. He will not reject his people. And that leads him to the fourth reason. It's contemporary to Paul. Paul says many thousands of Jews have accepted Jesus through faith, and their salvation was by grace, not by works. We know from Acts chapter 2, after the very first Christian sermon ever, about 3,000 Israelites, Jewish people, came to faith that day. And every day after that, the Holy Spirit added to those who were being saved. And all of the people originally saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ were Jews. This was to fill Jesus' message of Acts 1.8. Take this message first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You didn't get a non-Israelite Jew being saved until you get to chapters uh, 8 and 9. And then we're off to the races by the time we get to chapter 10. And now salvation is coming even to the Gentiles. There are plenty of Jews who have accepted the truth by grace. And if righteousness were by works, as the Israelites thought, then grace would no longer be grace because grace and works are antithetical. You cannot be righteous by works. Israel stumbled all over this truth. But those who were elect recognized the truth and they placed their faith. This is a really important thing because God's grace is available not just to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. Both groups of people... The righteousness that Israel sought did not come to them. Well, the elect were chosen, and so they received God's grace through their faith, but there were some that were hardened for a purpose. And it's very difficult for us to discern what is the purpose for the Israelites being hardened. Why would this ever happen? Why would God ever harden anybody? There must be a reason why, and our text today will explain what that reason is. But the reason we can't see it first is because people who cannot see spiritually, for them, blessings turn to harm, and the condition of spiritual blindness persists in their life. God sent the law to the Israelites, and yet they stumbled even over the law, thinking that was the means by which they would be right with God. And what was intended as a blessing actually harmed them because they thought, this is the only way we will be right with God. And they taught a works-based relationship with God. And it cannot work. And so they persisted in their spiritual blindness. And most of Israel was, in fact, blind. So what is God to do? Well, let us turn back to our text and read verses 11 through 15. Follow along. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches to the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full in uh, inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy to save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Does Israel stumble mean that they have fallen beyond recovery? By no means. Israel's stumble means that salvation can fall on the Gentiles. That's the reason that God hardened some within Israel, so that others could see the truth. In fact, 
I'd like to read just a small section from Acts chapter 13 on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the truth. And some of the Jews accepted and were saved and were invited back the next week, invited Paul and Barnabas back. And I'll pick up and read from Acts 13, verse 46 and following. They were, or uh, verse 44 and following, rather. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with envy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles." For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal salvation believed. Israel got the gospel first, but some were hardened so that the rest of the world could get the gospel also. This means that Israel's stumble led to Gentile justification and sanctification. Because Israel rejected the truth and was opposed to this, the gospel expanded outwards. And Gentiles received justification. Jesus died for their sins too, not just the Jewish people's. And they received sanctification when the Holy Spirit indwelled them and helped collaborate with them towards holiness that God truly desires. But... Israel's stumble opened this door. Just imagine how much glory would come with Israel's inclusion back to the faith. An even greater blessing. Israel's acceptance will someday be like the glorification you and I wait for. God awaits for Israel's redemption in the same way we await our resurrection bodies. We don't have them yet, but we know they are coming. Paul hopes that his ministry as apostle to the Gentiles may make Israel envious of Gentile salvation, resulting in some more Jews being saved. Now, you might think this is peculiar. Wait a minute. I thought envy was a bad thing. Let's camp out on envy just for a moment. Envy is wanting something that someone else possesses. At its base, that's what envy is. If you want something that belongs to someone else, you are being envious. Envy is either good or evil depending on the something that someone else has. Hear me out. If the something you want that someone else has is evil or is that which you have no right to have, then your, then your envy is evil and it's actually covetousness. If you want something that is bad, that's bad envy. If you want something that someone else has, but you don't have a right to it, that is bad envy. If I want my neighbor's car because it's a better car than my own, and I wish that that car were my particular car, I don't have any right to that car because that car is not mine. It belongs to my neighbor. And so my wanting what he has is bad envy. It's bad envy. If I wanted something that was evil that someone else had, that would be bad and evil envy. And the scripture is very clear. Do not want what someone else has if that something is bad or if that something is not for you. You can't want somebody else's wife because you have not pledged commitment to her. Her husband has. You have no right. And so stop wanting other people's wives. And yet, there is good envy. 
If the something you want that someone else has is good and you have a right to possess it, then your envy is good. So there are two conditions that must be met for envy to be okay. First is that the thing you desire that someone else has is good. Second, you have to have a right to have it. For example, it is good to be envious of a blessing from God which he intends all his people to enjoy. If God wants everybody to come to repentance and be saved, and you who are a sinner see somebody who's come to repentance, received God's mercy and grace, and has been saved, that same blessing is also available to you. So if you want what that person has, it is a good thing, and it is on offer to you, and being envious of that is actually a healthy thing. This is, in fact, one of the great ministry motivations. Preachers say things all the time like, live your life in such a way that people will want what you have. They'll want that relationship with God. Be so winsome and loving that they will want to be the way you are. And that is good. And if they are envious of what you have, they might take it. And now I know this all too well because I have been envious of something that someone else had. My very first year of Bible college, I was so envious of what my favorite Bible college professor, Ozark Christian College professor, Woody Wilkinson had. Woody Wilkinson was the smartest man I'd ever met. Woody Wilkinson had the best library of any individual I'd ever known. Woody Wilkinson is the kindest man I know. If you ever meet Woody Wilkinson and you say, Woody, how are you doing? This is his response 100% of the time. Saved and sanctified on my way to heaven, brother. How are you? Every single time. How are you doing, Woody? Saved and sanctified on my way to heaven. Because he knows the truth. He has been justified. He is being sanctified. And he's on his way to heaven where he will be glorified. He knows this truth. Woody was so smart. Woody is such a smart man. And when I took his class, I was in big need. I was a smart guy, but I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know Moses had a brother. I thought, well, Jesus is an only son, and so if Moses is like Jesus, then Moses has to be an only son. Well, I, I was wrong on lots of accounts. I didn't know anything. And so I came to Bible college pretty ignorant. And I remember the first day of a class called Christ and the Bible. It's an introduction to apologetics, and Woody Wilkinson said, everybody in this class needs to know what I know. Everybody in this room should want to know what I know because everybody in this room should be blessed and benefited by knowledge. Just as 1 Timothy uh, 2, 4 says, God wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And I have truth and I want you to know what I know. And I thought, wow, that's good. He said, everybody should want that. But I bet there are some people in this room who want to do more than just know this truth and be saved. I bet they want to teach this truth. I bet there are some of you who want to teach this to your children or to your Sunday school or to your coworkers or to your neighbors, and that's good. He said, but I bet there's some of you who want to teach it to even bigger circles. I bet there's someone in this room who wants to be a preacher. And when you grow up and you become a preacher, I want you to teach things I'm teaching you to your congregation so that they can know that Christ is God and that the Bible is true, that the resurrection is real, that the Trinity can be understood, and these things are available to us all. And I thought, yes, yes, I want to do it. I want to be just like Woody Wilkinson. And then he said something else. He said, I bet 
There might even be, I don't know, sometimes I don't, but there might be one person in this room who wants not just to know it, not just to teach it, not just to teach it to big circles, but wants to be influential in this area. Maybe go to school for a really long time and get a lot of degrees, letters after, before your name, so people will pay attention to you. And maybe you'll write books about this. Maybe you'll debate this stuff in the public square uh, and oppose those who oppose sound doctrine. Maybe there's someone in this room who wants to go do that. And I didn't raise my hand physically, but on the inside, my arms were up and I was shouting, yes, that's me, Woody, I will do that. And I took every single class that Woody Wilkinson offered. And Woody Wilkinson got his doctorate degree, and I thought, I better go get my doctorate degree. And after I got my first master's degree and was a colleague of Woody, and I taught alongside him, Woody taught Christ in the Bible, so I taught Christ in the Bible. Woody taught apologetics, so I taught apologetics. Woody taught philosophy, so I taught philosophy. Woody went and got his doctorate, I decided I'd go get my doctorate. And now, I get the opportunity to debate a pretty well-known atheist about the historical reliability of the resurrection in the way that Woody Wilkinson taught me. I was envious of what he had, and it was a good thing. And it was a thing that's available to all of us. I also know what it is when somebody's envious of what I have. My best friend is a fellow named Clay O'Dell, and after he graduated Ozark Christian College, he joined the Marine Corps for four years. And after getting out of the Marine Corps, serving his nation for four years, he said, what should I do? And we talked, and we were discipling, and I was discipling him, and we were growing one another as iron sharpens iron. And he said, I got to go to school. Hey, you got your master's degree in apologetics, right? I said, yeah, my first one. And he said, I'm going to go get a master's degree in apologetics. And I helped him along the way. And now he's Master Odell, Master of Apologetics, and he teaches this stuff to his church and to his co-workers and to his friends. It's all right to want what someone else has if that thing is good and if that thing is available to everybody. Just as Dr. Wilkinson desired me to want what he had, like Paul desired Israel to want the salvation the Gentiles enjoyed, that's a good thing. But remember, the Israelites are God's chosen people, and since they are God's chosen people, God wants them. And Paul wants to arouse envy in them so that they will come around to the truth. Let's jump back to our text and read verses 16 through 24. If part of the dough is offered, uh, the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to the other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to those, or kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? The truth of the matter is that Israel is the root, 
and the Gentiles are the branches. And we who are not of Jewish heritage have been grafted in. But there is no superiority. Israel was chosen but stumbled. And now the Gentiles are grafted in, but we are no better than Israel. It's important to recognize that anti-Semitism was a problem in first century Rome, just as it's a problem today. And some of the Jews there were castigated, and some of the people in the church may have looked down at the Jewish Christians. And Paul said, none of this is all right. Parts of Israel were broken off because of unbelief, but those who are saved stand by faith. The pruning benefited the Gentiles, but that does not make the Gentiles superior. In fact, arrogance comes from ignorance, but humility comes from truth. Israel stumbled in unbelief. Paul is saying to the Gentiles, make sure that you do not stumble in unbelief, which leads to pruning. If God pruned Israel, his chosen people, He'll also prune you, so do not slip into unbelief. Do not stumble over Jesus. Instead, ponder the nature of God. The most important thing I think we can do is ponder the nature of God. Think about who God is. Dig into his word and ponder his nature because God will demonstrate kindness for those who abide in his kindness. If you abide in his mercy, he shows you mercy. If you abide in his kindness, he shows you kindness. If you abide in his grace, he shows you grace. Live in the good that God has for you, and yet sternness is reserved for those who persist in unbelief. So if you ponder the nature of God, the only natural conclusion is that you should get rid of your unbelief. And the good news is that unbelief can be jettisoned. Unbelief can be addressed. There are reasons why campus house directors exist, and there are reasons why campus ministries exist, because the people who are told don't believe the Bible can reject that unbelief and come home to the truth. Coming home to the truth is what Paul wanted for Israel. Let's see how he finishes out the chapter, starting again in verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, and God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. This is a spiritual truth you must not miss out on. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so he can show mercy to everybody. This is his plan. But sometimes we don't understand his plan. Sometimes we think God just wants us to be perfect. God just wants everything to be so, so perfect. And sometimes arrogance and conceit lead to unbelief and being cut off. Gentiles are being saved, but Israel will be saved. Belief will come to many of the Jews. And so, 
Israel now stands as an enemy of the gospel by rejecting the faith and as a, as, as a means of obtaining righteousness. Israel will still teach today, works make you right with God. That is not what the gospel teaches. But Israel is still loved because of her heritage and because of God's promise. And don't ever forget, God's promise and call is irrevocable. God doesn't go back on his promises. Mercy cannot be shown without prior disobedience. And God wants to show mercy, for the results of mercy are glorious. When God created the world, he beheld everything he had created, and he said, it is very good. But very good is akin to being veritable paradise. It's so good that it is flawless. There are no flaws in God's creation. And yet, because of disobedience, human beings are fallen. Just as Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and fallen short. But we don't want to just get back to flawless God's plan is more glorious than that. Because of mercy, God wants you to go from being flawless to being fallen to being redeemed. For being redeemed is better than being perfect and flawless. Being redeemed, as Romans 3.24 says, is the way that God demonstrates his mercy to you. Did you know that God couldn't make you redeemed? God could only make you flawless. You had to be fallen for God to redeem you. But God's ultimate plan was that you would be redeemed because redeemed is better than flawless. So don't worry about Israel. Israel will be fine. Israel will be saved because Israel has fallen and God's mercy will be shown to them and they will come to a faith that will bring them higher than flawless. They will be redeemed just as many of us have been redeemed. I was, not, I was born without uh, the capacity to know right and wrong, but I was born with a full sinful nature, and I expressed it early and often. And I bet you did too. And I was fallen. But God's mercy doesn't just make me flawless. God's mercy makes me redeemed, a co-heir with Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the message we have to share with the world around us. Just as God will never reject Israel, God will not reject you even if you have rejected him. This is the message I offer to Dan Barker. Just because you've rejected God doesn't mean he rejects you. God still holds out his hand to you. If you can hear this sermon today, if you can hear this sermon on the internet right now as you're listening, know that God has not rejected you. There's still a small part of you that wants him and all of him wants you. He's waiting for you to shove away the unbelief and to embrace the gospel so that by grace you can be saved through faith. Demonstrate faith and get rid of unbelief. Become envious of those who know the truth and learn from them. I'm going to teach you a whole class on apologetics starting February 5th. Come and learn from me as I teach you what Woody Wilkinson has taught me and live your life in such a way that everyone who sees you becomes envious of the relationship you have with God in which you stand by faith so that they will want what you have.